A Renegades of Poetry, a poetry workshop in podcast form, featuring Gareth Ryder-Davis, Simon Cockle, and your host, David Van Corter. Hello, and welcome to A Renegades of Poetry, which is the first episode in uh, a new podcast. My name's David Van Corter, and I have with me today Simon Cockle Hello, and Gareth writer davis yeah and uh we're, we're going to be talking about uh poetry but uh the uh the thing that connects us is that we are all uh published by the uh, published by a uh, which is based in in wales and um uh, we will have a book or in gareth's case several books published by the by them um the, the idea today was just to um try and reconnect uh, over the uh, over the airwaves because we see we haven't seen each other for quite a long time um just try and talk a bit about poetry in general uh, and in particular maybe choose a, a one poem each that we uh, each enjoy for whatever reason and then try to come up with a new poem uh, based on the poem that we've selected uh, and we decided that to kick, kick things off we'd have the poetry of place as a theme so uh let's head over to uh, I think Gareth is going to be starting us off. Uh, thank you David. Um, yeah, um, so we've kind of written a poem, we haven't necessarily completed the poems for uh, for this podcast, but uh, first of all we'll start off, I'm going to start off with the poem by somebody else, uh, Billy Collins, an American poet who's been um, poet laureate of America several times, published in this country, the UK, by Picador Poetry. Uh, this is from his collection, Ballistics. It's called Brightly Coloured Boats Upturned on the Banks of the Charles. What is there to say about them that has not been said in the title? I saw them near dawn from a glassy room on the other side of that river, which flowed from some hidden spring to the sea. But that is getting away from the brightly coloured boats upturned on the bank of the Charles, the sleek racing skulls of a college crew team. They were beautiful in the clear early light, red, yellow, blue and green, is all I wanted to say about them. Although for the rest of the day, I pictured a lighter version of myself, calling time through a little megaphone, first to the months of the year, then to the Twelve Apostles, all grimacing as they leaned and pulled on the long wooden oars. One, the first thing I'll say about this is like, I like the way he immediately uh, deconstructs uh, how to write a poem at the start by saying, well, what is there to say about that? that has not already been said in the title? And uh, certainly that's a poet's dilemma. Often, how, how, how do I put that into words and is it really worth it? What do, what do you guys reckon? It's interesting because I, I, I agree with you, although I notice in the, at the end of the first stanza, it says there is no getting away from the brightly coloured boats upturned on the banks of the Charles. True. So so he, he actually introduces a new piece of information so that yeah. if, if the idea is to say it's all been said in the title, um, it, it's uh, he actually adds the word up upturned in there but yeah i agree with you in in terms of it's it's a very meta poem isn't it in terms of drawing attention to the fact that it's being written 
Um, and it's interesting because obviously he he's disputing the idea that it's all been said in the title by actually adding more information into it. So it's it, it's interesting. Is he saying that no, you can't say everything in the title, or you know there there is? It's like William Carlos Williams in the, with the um with the the red wheelbarrow, you know. Yeah. There is there is nothing else but this. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's a kind of play on that. Perhaps I don't know. What do you think, David? Yes, I I, I like the um, disarming nature of the beginning. I just think it, it really uh, really sort of throws you um, a, a nice sort of conversational start of ten. If you like, it's just kind of uh, <laughs> uh, I, I've I've said it all already, so we don't need to say anything else. But there, within that, there is a kind of a knowing. Um, it, it said like that to make you think the opposite um, if you like um, you know that he's oversimplifying the idea uh, deliberately and um, yeah, I, I, yeah I mean it's uh, certainly uh, certainly an interesting way to, to get going um, and then the little details that are added uh, definitely uh, brings it more to life as it continues I mean where it yeah. starts to talk about those twelve apostles, and that's really interesting as the as the poem kind of comes out of itself and sort of moves out into the world, and you know, then it then it becomes with the religious imagery and the um and the uh, you know the sort of uh, the the grimacing grimacing and pulling on the long wooden oars. I like the fact that it, it kind of takes off at the very end, and he's he's almost admitted that yeah, there was actually more than just the title. That there, there was more, kind of in the poet's mind, as it were. And I, and I like the fact he then ends the poem just as it gets going. And I mean, Billy Collins writes a lot of poems like this, where yeah, well, here I am and doing, and is there really anything to write about? Oh, I've just seen a bird up in a tree, and it's <laughs> um, yeah, it is disarming, as you say. And uh, I think he probably gets criticised a fair amount for it for almost becoming a tick. But it is interesting. And he said it's not necessarily original to him, but I think David came up, maybe it was David who came up with the term disarming. It is disarming. And it's also very popular, and he's a poet who non-poets read. So there's not there's not there's not much wrong with that, you know. <laughs> I love that reference to a glassy room. So, so not a room with with a big piece of glass in it, like a big glass window, but a glassy room. I like that um, expression. Um, isn't okay. it? Where does the Charles flow? Do we know where the Charles River flows? No, I, di I didn't. Uh, I think he's a New Yorker originally, um, but um, no, I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm looking I, it up now. I don't always research poems to the nth degree because <laughs> you, you want to leave a bit. Uh, you want to leave. You don't need to know everything in a poem. I always think. If uh, I think that's a good tip, you know, you don't have to. You can, you can leave some space. You don't have to know everything. No, that's part of the magic. Sometimes. I thought so. It's Boston. It it it, it runs through Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you can certainly you can certainly see the images. It, he puts it there for you, the brightly coloured, and then he introduces more information, as you say. Yeah. And I'm really at, at the end of it. 
the main thing I walk away from, because the 12 apostles all grimacing, I kind of, I'm not so concentrated on that. I just, I can, I can see the brightly coloured boats, mm. which actually is all in the title, as he said in the first place. And, uh, and that's the main image I'm left with, colourful boats upturned on the bank of the Charles. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I did uh, question, yeah, like, like you say, so it does the, the image is the thing. Um, but the, yeah. then the, the metaphor comes in about the the apostles and the, um, uh, the but just the him the idea of him being a lighter version of himself uh, as the cocks on these boats, um, mm. and then as you say it ends just as he's getting going, and I'm just thinking, well, what what is the point of that? And mm. he, he he sort of deliberately doesn't give you the point. He just sort of says, this is something that I imagined looking at them, draw your yeah. own conclusions. Um, yes. And really, it's about the brightly coloured boats upturned on the banks of the Charles. Yeah. <laughs> Not being imagining himself as the cocks with a megaphone. So, uh, yeah. I think I think of... we're being rather rude about a college crew team. I don't think we need to refer to them quite in that way. <laughs> Unless I've misheard. So, uh... um, yes. 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 Uh, I mean, uh, there could be stuff you can research, you know, okay, Charles, Boston. Uh, Ivy League universities would have rowing teams, I guess. Our apostles, some sort of college crew nickname. I have no idea. Or is it simply the 12 apostles? Don't know. But uh, don't need to know because it's all about the brightly coloured boats upturned on the banks of the tunnel. <laughs> well, you know, that's really interesting because uh, the thing about a poem is that what we've always been led to believe is that. Um, you know the 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 reader the audience is everything so if you read a poem and it makes you think about a holiday you had when you were five or it makes you think about you know um something you saw on tv or in a film or or you imagine another experience then that that's how poems are meant to work they're meant to kind of unlock you know the imagination but if the poet is saying no actually it is just um these brightly colored boats on the banks of the charles there is nothing else you don't have to think about anything else. So you don't have to think about Boston or, or the Charles River or Ivy League or whatever. You just literally have to think about these three boats. Yeah. And it's kind of like a challenge to the to the reader to go, well, stop thinking about everything else you're thinking about. Stop thinking about all of the connotations of the language. Just mm. focus on what I'm saying, which is that there's some brightly coloured boats on Enjoy the boats of the Charles. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of strange, isn't it, in that sense that you know it's that that challenge to not think of anything else. Yeah, it's, it's deceptively simple like that. It just sort of uh, throw, throws it at you. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There it is. Um, uh, and the, I think as poets, we're constantly trying to uh, say, well, what, what, why am I doing this? I mean, I, you might have an idea or a line or something, and you write it, and then and then you look at it again, and you think, well, this. There's what's the point of this? You now, why have I why have I created this thing? Um, yeah. Collins is doing here is saying, Well, that doesn't matter, you know, he's he's saying that poetry doesn't have to be about that necessarily, it's just about saying, Here's a thing, um, and letting everyone else do the work, letting the reader come in and, and take over. Um, I mean, it's, it's almost like don't think too hard, yeah. <laughs> Having said that, this is a very well thought out poem, so yes. <laughs> yeah, has its cake and eats it. Yeah, <laughs> we'd all like to do. Great. Okay, so thanks, Gareth. That was uh, Billy Collins' poem. Very interesting. I'm going to read my choice now, 
which is a poem by Philip Larkin. And this is called Home is So Sad. It was written in the early 60s and first appeared in the collection called uh, The Wits and Weddings. Home is so sad. Home is so sad. It stays as it was left, shaped to the comfort of the last to go, as if to win them back. Instead, bereft of anyone to please, it withers so, having no heart to put aside the theft and turn again to what it started as, a joyous shot at how things ought to be, long fallen wide. You can see how it was. Look at the pictures and the cutlery, the music in the piano stool, that vase. Hmm. That's, a, that's another poem where you're being led by the title. Mm. I wonder if he had a different title, whether you'd come to different conclusions. He is rather leading the witness is the first thing I think about. But also what he says is very true. It, it's uh, I, I, I've always loved this poem. I, I first encountered it when I was doing A-level. We had the Wits and Weddings as our book. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's so short. And yet it says such a lot in its uh, 10 lines. I think what, what Larkin is, is saying is that, that there's that the home and uh, is, is a, a complex idea uh, and where you're thinking about the idea that's, that home is is part of a person or a person is directly connected with where they live um, or every object and every little detail is part of that person and part of who they are um, mm. and what he's describing here is a is a is a home which is it's ambiguous enough to to, to is it is an empty house or is it a house that he's sort of come back to after some some time um, has somebody died? You know, there's all lots of sorts of questions going on here. Um, but he, he doesn't, he gives the detail is not the detail which tells the story. It's the detail which, which creates the scene. Um, and you can bring your own emotions and your own ideas to to those details um, and, and kind of imbue them with significance. Uh, and it, it's, it's just so skillful that it's, it's, it's precise, but also has enough universality to uh, to really appeal, I think, to, to the reader and to sort of say, oh, yeah, I get I get that feeling. He kind of gets the feeling across rather than the, you know, the who and the why and the where. <laughs> I would say I like the rhyming scheme. Um, I would say it's not too obtrusive. You kind of notice it later, which is kind of, uh, which is cool um it's conversational yeah it's it is very nice it's, it's a bit well like billy collins again you he, he doesn't really he doesn't show the cleverness of it the structure is good but it's really not the point it's about connection it's about universality and this is a, a as david said this is an experience common to many how home was how sometimes it was happy how you could see how the effort was made to make it a home but it didn't really quite work out somehow. Mm. But these are the ones which indicate to you um, how it was meant to be. These are the icons which are left, you know, the picture on the wall, that was. Yeah. It's it's a construct, isn't it, home? It's it's what people 
it's what people try to make of a house isn't it they make they make a, a house into a home so it's a, it's a it's a, it's human activity isn't it and um but i like the way he kind of personifies home that it stays as it was left and it tries to win them back um but it but it can't um the other thing you could say is that philip larkin is so sad as well because when you know a little bit about the poet you could tell that kind of despondency and pessimism kind of comes through and it, it's quite hard to separate the poet from the from the poem it's i certainly thought of uh, <laughs> i certainly thought of uh, morrissey as the poem was being and i thought yep yeah, this is uh I, I'm, I was thinking that Morrissey has probably read a lot of Larkin because it's, um, I, I think there's even a poem, a, a, a song you did with the Smiths was, you know, you can't go home again. And uh, yeah, it's a, uh, certainly Larkin's connection with Coventry was, it, was, it wasn't even bittersweet. I think it was mainly bitter. And it was, mm. I think he, he, in a place he kind of left and was very happy to get get its dust off his shoes you know yeah but, i mean he was very good he did go back and see his mother pretty much every other weekend and by train and um but on the other hand it, it was i think he found it a millstone yeah he just wasn't happy at home he didn't fit i really like the last two words that vase mm. because that's a shared comment isn't it because that vase is a reference to something that that was shared amongst more than one person that that you could talk about it as that vase you know and yeah. and, and the other person would go oh yes i know what you mean by that so there's a connection in that last phrase but it's also kind of it, it's kind of cold and blunt isn't it that vase you know yeah. monosyllabic and and sort of almost alien but but simultaneously it, it connects it, it also depends. Um, I think David read it fairly straight. But yeah, it could be quite a pert ending. You know, the music in the piano still, that vase, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, you can put your own experiences onto this poem. We've all yeah, got we've all that vase somewhere. The, uh, the, the very sort of short sentences at the end, and, and, and that, uh, that really stood out to me when I first read it. it, it, it yeah, back in back in school um just that you could do that you could do that in a poem you can um you can just suddenly have a have a tiny little thing say look at this look at that you know um and this is a just the, the most precise way of doing that thing uh, that i've seen in a poetry way in a poem where you just kind of take the the very, very minimal use of language and and just point the reader at it mm. uh, and and there you are that vase what, what what do we make of that vase and, and I've, i was i was reading about this yesterday just trying to think just, just looking online to see how people would had responded to it just as here um and someone was had this theory that the vase was actually an urn uh, and it contained somebody's ashes oh yeah, yeah that's not in the poem at all but you know that they've kind of brought that to it from their own you know, but you could interpret it in that way this idea that you could do yeah um, yeah, first verse. There's a lot of bereft and wither, a withers so, and yes, mm. I can see that. Um, but equally, it could just be, you know, like a shared memory of something 
uh, oh that vase is still there you know that terrible pattern <laughs> so just something that was just a, that, that vase we bought with that vase we bought back from shanklin on that holiday on the isle of one and then it never quite fitted but it stayed there yeah <laughs> it's almost like an anecdote in itself that vase, you know and, uh, and and even the detail of the music in the piano stall kind of fits that it's the idea that there used to be life there used to be but with that just blank sheet it has no there's no music the piano isn't being played anymore but the, the music is still there it's just sort of sat there um, just just waiting for something to happen <laughs> and the everyday cutlery the idea of cutlery so it's not just pictures not just things that you mm. see and the art that you think about it's, it's it's cutlery it's things that you use practically around the house um so uh, it, it is kind of a whole life experience uh, described just in a few um, few words. Ten short lines. Mm. Yeah. yeah, very clever, I think. Okay, now uh, I think it's time to introduce uh, Simon's poem. Yeah, I'm going to read a poem by uh, a local poet. Well, lo certainly local to uh, to me and David, because um, we live in the east of England. This is the poet John Greening, uh, who's a, uh, a Huntingdonshire poet. And that's quite an interesting idea, because there isn't really such a thing as Huntingdonshire. But uh, it's Cambridgeshire. But uh, certainly I, I grew up in, in, in the Huntingdon area and... Um, I, I always seem to remember Huntingdon and Huntingdonshire as being a, a geographical location. Um, in actual fact, uh, the poem that I'm going to read isn't about Huntingdonshire, but it does come from John Greening's uh, co uh, collective poems called Hunts. And this is a poem called Seven Sea Interludes. One. Childhood is soft chalk. It allows the sea to erode almost to break through. Were we forever children, there would be no midlands, only sea air, a mirror line of headlands. Two. Adolescence arrived like a storm beach overnight, with bodies much sea rack and each shingled face turning guiltily from salt ejaculations to identify a fault. Three. Student days hang like a pantomime horseshoe, that bay on whose shores we held our barbecue debate come dance, loving the tide's motion, aware, of course, from lectures of the pollution. 4. As young couples we kiss to the cliff's edge, lie down with razor bills on a narrow edge, laugh at the lifeguard, laugh at the fishing folk in their corky craft, the sea is a huge joke. 5. Executive schedules seldom cover the seaside, only if there's a lover or a business conference. One buys a yacht, one moors it in Pool Harbour. The strakes rot. 6. Parenthood is a final glimpse of the gold you found on the beach as a one-year-old. Return to the landslip, the past gives way, and you are your children, have feet of clay. 7. A saga holiday, perhaps. Promenades before supper. An evening playing cards. Images in a landlocked single room of crossing the bar. Stacks, arches, the blown spume. Hmm. Interesting. Is it, uh, 
is it me or is there a lot of sex in there well it, I, the, the way that i read it it's a bit like the seven ages of man so yeah. it's, it's basically one place which is the uh which is the the coastline but yeah. fil- filtered through the sort of uh prism of of the of the of those seven ages and i guess yeah. that certainly two or three of them seem to 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 focus in on on sort of uh sex and reproduction but i i just i like the idea of like one place but at seven different stages of somebody's life and how how the place stays the same but changes depending on what age the person is when they view it it was yeah i should have seen that seven sea interludes seven ages of man but you're right there are salt ejaculations in the second stanza and the third one debate come c-u-m dance uh, yeah <laughs> yeah uh, and yeah. uh and in the fifth stanza the reference to only if there's a lover or a business conference um, yeah mind you sex is one of the great drivers so yeah it is isn't it um I mean, I, I just, I, I, I love the, I, I love, I just love the, the way that he uses language, and that every now and again there'll be a, there'll be a, an odd little phrase like the corky craft, and then Ooh. in the fifth stanza the strakes rot, and uh, the, the blown spume. I've got a feeling that Seamus Heaney really liked that poem. Um, <laughs> I, I seem to remember because, do you remember David John Greening came to. Um, came to read for us in uh, in lecture yes, yeah. yeah and mm. i don't think he mentioned it then or he might have done but i seem to remember reading up about about um heaney really liking that particular poem because it's got a kind of heaney heaney quality to it mm. um but uh that's you know it's nature imagery that that you read in heaney yeah, that's right. It, I mean, it's it's a it's quite a, a complex poem. There's there's a lot of images kind of crashing around on the shoreline, but mm. I, I I like the I like the way it evokes that sense of place because I, I think we've all had that, haven't we? Where you know we go to the seaside as a child, and mm. it's it's an amazing place. Then we go back there, and we're adolescents, and then it's all about you know who can we hook up with and so on. And then we go back there in middle age, and it's and it's that kind of you know the the sea coming in and out like life and time and 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 whatever. And then yeah. you you end up going there when you're like seventy odd, and you're sitting in your car eating fish and chips on the on the quayside, you know, as because it, it's pouring with rain. That sounds that sounds all right. It does, doesn't it? I mean, the, the, how how British to sit to sit at the seaside in a car and eat <laughs> fish and chips? I mean, that's got to be the most British thing you can do. <laughs> and I, I, I really like I like this poem. I think it's uh, yeah. I love I love the construction. I love the um, the seven ages thing. Um, mm. But I, I I like how it really kind of evokes the place, and the place is static. The place is the same. Yeah, know, all the time. It's just it's the sea and the sea and the, the rocks and it's just doing its thing. <laughs> I mean, maybe the uh, the accoutrements, the things around it, the the shops are going to change because time's moving on. But he focuses mm. on the sea and the cliffs and the, those are the things that are the same. And it and each time it's yeah, it's a different perspective how we come to it and we look at it in different ways. Um, um, well, what's that? What's that poem? Seventeen ways of looking at a blackbird. Um, who is that by? Oh, I'm trying to remember, but. Um, I always, always 
think of that when I think of this um, this idea where where the, the object that you're looking at is the same, um, but the perspective of the viewer changes in each stanza or in each chapter or whatever. Um, and it, it takes quite a skillful writer to be able to do that to see see from somebody else's perspective and and to kind of look. The, what happens is overall you get a kind of a a very sort of three D view. In this case, four D, I would say, because you've got the aspect of time as well. Um, image of the place that emerges because it's not just oh I went there and I saw this. It's not just the poet and the thing. It's suddenly it's many different view viewpoints. Um, and it really kind of brings the place to life. It makes the place, mm. it gives the place its own character because it's about how it reflects the people that see it. It was another poem with a barely noticeable rhyming scheme. Mm. Um, it's always cool. I feel it doesn't, it didn't feel full. No. And nice to, in the last line of the poem, nice to get a bit of uh, Tennyson in there, crossing the bar. Um, oh, right. Which is rather nice. Um, I mean, it may not have been original to Tennyson, but it's one of his best-known poems. And that's I like that. Mm. By the way, uh, fact fans out there, it's uh, thirteen ways of looking at a blackbird, and it's uh, Wallace Stevens. I was just looking that myself. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't it? Um, I was about to correct myself. How many ways was there to leave your lover? Um, <laughs> uh, a million, wasn't it? Or Sixteen. <laughs> uh, yes, it's it's great. I've just found it now. Thirteen ways of looking at the blackbird. Wallace Stevens. Uh, yeah, still a, still a great poem. Um, while we're on the subject of uh, of poems with numbers in them, um, there's a poem by Simon Armitage, which is I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's nineteen small poems all built around the idea of golf as a uh, as an analogy because uh, Simon Armitage is really into golf apparently so he wrote this poem that has 19 verses and each verse is built around a hole and obviously the 19th hole is you know like the bar but um, the, the only one I can remember is he is, is uh, he says in in one of them that um, that that time where your child, is on their bike and it's their first day of, of, at school and you sort of push them out onto the onto the into the street and they cycle you know and meander their way to school and then they go through the the, the school gates and that's like a hole in one so I just thought it was such a lovely, a lovely idea that, you know, sending your child to school for the first time on their own was like, was, you know, like, like getting a hole in one. But as I say, every, every verse is, is like a different play on, on golf as a, as a kind of, I think it's golf as a watchword is, is, is in the, is in the title or something. Yeah. Okay. But that's, that's another lovely poem about that, that has numbers and a thing in it. Maybe we could do that as our next theme poems with numbers and a thing in the title so uh, in the second part of this podcast the idea is that we've all written a poem about place possibly related directly or indirectly to the poem that we talked about in the first half and uh, so i'm going to hand over now back to gareth with his own poem Okay, thanks, David. Um, 
All right, this is called Ballast. Um, it comes with a quote. I never, I never saw what's called that thing in italics after the title, but it's, it's got a title from Langston Hughes, poem called Tired. I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. So I chose to give the globe a good shake and loaded ballast in the hold. Traded my way along the African shore, worked like a dog until I had my cargo of bones. Then north by northwest upon the east wind to barter my goods for cotton and skins. The wheel held steady, my course stayed true. I chased Polaris, made home, repaid my father and bought drinks all round. Load, loaded clinker sailed. There's an island of ashes in Lagos Bay, Cardiff, Pocheli, and the port of Bombay. And the world is not beautiful nor kind. It was on the fourth village. The cargo shifted, my ship capsized and killed, all lost. The sharks ate well that day. I endowed the chapel clock, prayed. The word is made flesh, and a thousand skeletons dance before my eyes. Um, I think we all agreed that uh, the poems we we uh, we wrote for the podcast weren't necessarily finished. And yeah, there's there's stuff which needs tightening and changing on this. But hey, there it is. What would you What would you change about it then? What What Where do you think it's? Uh, it well, this about the end. I've spent quite a lot of time on the end. Uh, I was advised um, uh, Jonathan Edwards, who's recently stopped being the editor of Poetry Wales, he said, yeah, poems shouldn't just fade away. They should have a strong image at the end of being strong at, strong at the end as they were at the start and in the middle, you know. And I think that's true. So I haven't quite got that killer last stanza or two there yet. That advice, yeah. the advice about uh what is it coming in hard and and leaving quietly yeah because I mean, what you've said is come in hard and leave hard, hard. as it were yes. um, um but but yeah. i don't i don't know because uh, i mean if there's two conflicting views of 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 how to start and end a poem then there's no rule is there so no i mean i i think i think what he was meaning is that you know too many poems just kind of end wistfully and da da, yeah. da 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 da, and you just go, mm, yeah, it's got to be punchy. If it's it's supposed to be punchy, and this is supposed to be a punchy poem, it's it's kind of like it's a take on place, mm. uh, the place of Wales and the slave trade, and it's supposed to be, you know, it's written by a white middle class person trying to find some sort of way of engaging with racism without looking like a prat or an entitled uh person or, or some with innate racism within them so yeah it's uh it's a tricky brief as it were but uh i took on the challenge i i like it i like it i like uh, i like the imagery in it i like the i like the the quality of the language some of the monosyllabic phrases in there they work mm. like a dog and a cargo of bones and i like uh, the word clinker you know in any poem, the word clinker will always work well, for I'm, me. Well, I'm imagining a, you know, a sailor, someone who's some captain of their own ship. Mm. Basically, they're, they're just making a living. They're not there to be, become a rich, rich person. They're, 
you know, Wales in those days had had very few options, um, mm. possibly, and um, and they did. They weren't really involved in the slave trade, only really because to invest in the slave trade, for starters, mm. you need to be pretty well off in order to equip the ship, buy the ship, get it started on its voyage. Yeah. As it, and Wales just was never that rich a place, and so Cardiff was involved, but. They certainly built stuff for the slave trade. They were involved in that. But, uh, I think that maybe this is a guy who discovers morality. It's a job of work, and then he discovers morality along the way, as it were. Mm. A bit, uh, that's why I had an echo of Kipling in Lagos Bay and the port of Bombay. Mm. Well, Kipling is also someone who, who people sometimes look at as a, as a racist, but actually he criticised the empire as much yeah. as anything. He wasn't jingoistic. He saw the kind of the dirt underneath the grasping fingernails of the empire, you know. Mm. And so I'm trying to engage with that, really. No, mm. I, I I agree I, with Simon. I think it's a very successful poem. Um, it, it, it sort of it packs a punch, definitely, and not just the beginning and the end. I think the whole story is is mm. is strong and, uh, um, and and can be regarded on a kind of metaphorical level as well as just. A story, and and I like that. I like the idea that it's about how your 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 mental state changes as as you go through go on, on yeah. the voyage. Um, it's sort of uh, the real sense of kind of trying to do do the do the thing just to survive and to make money, and then there's this real sense of guilt at the end, which comes in with that, that image of the thousand skeletons. Um, I uh, yeah, I, I really like it. I think it's. Um, it's it's yeah it's very kind of uh, terse and brief with its with its language which which uh, mm. which helps because it, it, it gives that conversational tone to it i guess i, th- I saw the voice as a sailor as a captain mm. yeah sort of person you know so so that's why I, I kind of kept the language like that i mean obviously the imperialists the, the british the dutch the french didn't invent slavery but they certainly industrialized it and uh, mm. And then it became a whole different, and you know, our present world is built upon it, which a lot of people, probably me included, don't don't like to engage with too much because it's just the history is too dirty. And you just yeah, it's it's very tricky. Um when I when I grew up, I'm a wee bit older than you guys, I was surrounded by empire, you know, where mm. I lived. Um, across the road was uh, an elderly white gentleman who'd retired as a judge from the Indian civil service. So, you know, he spent most of his career in India. But And then, I don't know, somewhere in the mid-70s, it's like someone just changed the conversation. You never heard about the empire anymore because I think we're somewhat ashamed about it and we'd rather, like, be, oh, it's nothing to do with us. But, you know, our whole present prosper- uh, uh, prosperity is built upon it. So it's um, yeah, yeah, and, and actually the prompt was um, a friend uh, suggested it, who was um, uh, the guy who's just recently won the national poetry competition, uh, Marvin Thompson, and he was in a uh, and he was in a workshop with him, and uh, and Marvin, who's who's a, who's a black guy from London originally, now in Wales, that I want to hear how about white people engaging in racism. We need to go to awkward places, but hey. From my point of view, I want to hear, and I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of poets are, let's face it, a lot of white and middle class people involved in it. Mm. 
want to be thought of as nice people who don't engage in any such thought or who who don't want to be who don't want to embarrass themselves by mm. saying the wrong thing I suppose. And uh but yeah sometimes you've got to take a few risks, you know. Poetry needs to take a few risks. Great. Okay. Well, thanks, Gareth. Uh, I think it's my turn next. Um, I was writing in response to the Philip Larkin poem that we talked about earlier, Home is So Sad. Um, but uh, the, the title is also uh, links to some other poems I've been writing recently about uh, games and board games. And the title is actually the name of a board game as well. So <laughs> I linked it into um, where my head is at at the moment. Uh, this is called Welcome To. Here is your plot, a rectangular patch on the right-hand side of an empty grid. So far it lacks a number or a name or any neighbours, but it belongs to you. Furnish, decorate, adorn. Imagine your dream garden flourishing with rainbow beds, water features, decking. Hell, why not a patio you've painted pink and nature running wild between the aspidistras? Plant trees and bushes and a maze, lay paths and dance around them, singing, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. Possessed, your home extends from you, its ornaments and hangings propping up your careful construct, pieces of you on display for visitors to analyse. Those books you haven't read, the curtain colour clash, the dripping tap. And the jury is still out on that, on that African headdress repurposed as a reading lamp. But they can shove it, right? This is your plot and they can write their own. You put your feet up with a cup of tea and get stuck into the latest chatter from a world that seems more distant by the day, unending screens of other people's problems. You have cake, a cat and slipper socks. What more is there? This is your home. I, I did, uh, nice one, David. I did like the start of it. Here is your plot. I thought, okay. <laughs> So I liked the drama of that, as it were. Um, works works both ways. Uh, cake, a cat, and slipper socks. Yeah, that's very you, David. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of three things that make me happy. <laughs> Put them together. <laughs> I like I like the play on the word plot, like plot of land and plot and story and so on. So, so what is the game? Welcome to. What? How does that work then? It's it's a game where you're. Um, everyone has a kind of their own pad of paper, which is kind of streets that are empty. Yeah. And the, the idea is you, you you turn over cards collectively, mm. and then you have to with a number in, and you have to choose where to put that house. Mm. <laughs> so you fill it in, and you're gradually filling up your your streets with the uh, the various cards coming in. You can build pools, and you can build fences and things, and kind of create little estates. Um, as the game goes on and you're sort of getting points by putting the, the things together. <laughs> that sounds good. It, it, um, is there in fact such a game? Mm, um, yeah, no, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like Monopoly with knobs on. <laughs> uh, it's better. It's better than that. Um, like a pen and paper version of SimCity. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's got that, that kind of aspect to it. Um, but yeah, you can play it online. I've been playing online quite a bit, and then you can play it quite quickly with other people, like random people. Um, but I, I, what I what I was trying to tie in that with with this is is sort of the the idea of now the whole lockdown experience. Everyone's spending 
all their time at home. Um, yeah. And here I am playing a game where I'm imagining building these houses on the, online, uh, when in fact I'm sitting there with my feet up and a cup of tea, and I'm not really doing any of the hard work. You know, <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm very much kind of focused on on your house. And I just think other people might have that same experience this idea of what, what is it that makes you you and the more you stay home and the less you go out the more you look at your surroundings and they become part of your own world part of your experience so it was phrase you become part of the furniture uh, that's sort of what i was thinking about yeah, the idea that yeah. the furniture it's the other way around like the furniture becomes part of you um the the fantasy of the first dancer i did like uh, which tie, ties in with the game i guess rainbow beds water features hell why not a patio you've painted pink <laughs> nature running wild between the aspidistras yeah um and your construct and your extensions so yeah there's a lot, quite a lot of building stuff in there as well which is nice um the african headdress repurposed as a reading lap is perhaps the equivalent of larkin's that vase um you're really quite uh, to the point in the third stanza but they can shove it right so is that the kind of um, aggression of the keyboard warrior, or uh, yeah, or? Well, it's the it's these visitors that uh, that judge you, you know, you know, back when we could have home visitors and and you sort of, you know, they look at what's around, uh, look at your books and, <laughs> and they're sort of, yeah. oh, okay, all right, he's got he's got Nabokov on there, okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so that's my that's my poem. Welcome to, and uh, I'll hot off the press, and I will be probably working on that, and that might appear at some stage. Who knows? Um, great, thanks for your comments on that. I think now we are going back to Simon. Uh, Simon's written one for us as well. Yeah, so this is a poem called Mardley Heath, which uh, for those of the uh, of you out there who are aficionados of Hertfordshire, that's uh, an area of woodland just south of Nebworth. Um, yeah, it's quite a popular spot for people to go and walk their dogs and and run around in and so on. So, this is about Mardley Heath, and um, it's a poem about my daughter who's nine years old. Um, so, uh, she's the you of the poem. So, this is Mardley Heath in a forest of the mind where bird song reverberates, I watch you swing out into space on a ditched tyre, measuring time. Nearby, trees crouch on a cobweb of roots, queens of sand hills and shadow hollows. Distant cars race each other to work that doesn't matter. Their echoes sculpt nothing. But you return to the place you were before. Yes, um, I will declare an interest in that I used to live next to Mardley Heath, yeah, uh, right. if not upon it, and in in a in a road which kind of led up to it. So yeah, I do know it. Uh, it's an interesting place—a place of old gravel pits and gravel extraction and uh, and woodland. Mm. Uh, and the A1M, which is distantly uh, in your ears, as I, I think you mentioned, with the distant cars race each other to work. That doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. 
I like um, I like the tire swing, which is almost like a pendulum. Mm. Um, it's um, obviously to people who don't know Mardley Heath, they may know there's trees in it. They may not. Uh, I guess um, the bird song and the cars is a nice uh, contradiction of each other, as it were. And I did like the end of it, but you return to the place you were before, as you do on a small car, don't you? Mm, that's right. It's rather nice. Um, yeah. Queens of Sand Hills and Shadow Hollows. Yes. I do recognise that from the heat, indeed. Because yeah, yeah. they, they have these trees. There's one particular tree on, I think, the highest point in in, in the wood. It, it's a tree that's made roots into the ground, but mm. the ground has gradually kind of eroded away and yeah. has left has left the roots. And you can actually get inside these roots. I mean, it, it's incredible. You can kind of hide inside them like a den. Um, and then the roots then go into the, the mound that's kind of left. So there, yeah. there's sev- several of these weird looking trees around. But I, I, I mean, I think what I was trying to do is I was trying to capture that that for certainly for a child um you know exploring the world around them the idea of being on a on a tire that's hanging from a tree and and like going out into space and coming back again and going out again it it, it's that process of exploring of of seeing how far you can go of of like going out into the sort of you know the nothingness and coming back again and i want i wanted to sort of contrast that with the with the um with the the sort of the with nature and then contrast that with the fact that there are these cars in the distance that are are, are kind of spoiling the sort of ambience of the place but they're on their way to nothing really they you know what they do is just nothing compared to what's going on 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 in these woods on this on this heath and what and what my daughter's experience is a far more powerful and 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 valid experience than than the world the the outside world as it were yeah um from, from memory there's a small lane that goes through the heath as well mm. it's not much bigger than a, a vehicle really yeah I, I often used to think when i walked through there if it wasn't just yeah if it wasn't for the a1m humming away at the back reminding you mm. you, you could think you uh yeah on, i don't know a norfolk heath or or whatever and uh and i and my daughters are a similar age when we were there so yes i think i think they think back to it as well as it being really quite a magical place and what places to hide and play mm. yeah mm. i think I, I like it i think it's very good um i i particularly like the way it sort of uh brings together the, the different senses uh so that you you get this real sense of place going on um in, in that it's, it's just like a snapshot it's, it's just moments where the, the sounds are as important as as everything else um which as you say it's from your your daughter's perspective and and, and you you get that feeling that is, this is how she, sort of she is experiencing the world it's just all this input and all this thing but but none of it is is important um the the work that doesn't matter the echoes that sculpt nothing all of this stuff that preoccupies us all of the time um is is forgotten um and and it's just about being in the moment and in the place and and experiencing the world you you get that feeling across uh very well i think which uh, yeah i think 
more people should should do that should experience just sort of sit and experience the world and try not to think about the complications yeah Uh, i think it's i think it's a good a good way to uh, try and adjust your perspective sometimes going back to what gareth said about the way you come into a poem and the way that you leave it what what do you both make of that first line in a forest of the mind what what do you think about that you could um you could lo- could you lose it i don't think it's entirely necessary no you could you could start off with bird song reverberate i watch you swing out into space on a ditch tire i think that would be fine really because yeah what do you reckon david yeah it did it did spring out a little bit as though it's sort of because when when you first read it you think is you start to think it's not real you know the forest of the mind suggests something that's imagined uh but you, although there is imagination in it it is a real place and it's a real thing going on so it might be a bit distracting or a bit kind of, uh, <laughs> a bit deceptive do you think of... it's po- poetry 101 do you think in a forest of the mind is poetry 101 <laughs> I mean, I don't remember reading it, but it does have that feeling of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go on, be brave. Go on, say it. <laughs> okay. It is, it is, it, you could say it's a bit too poety. It is, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, it is. I mean, I, I'd be happy to lose in a forest of the mind. And well, it, it's it's a little bit tiger, tiger burning bright as well, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I think it'd make it stronger without it. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- mm-hmm. I will chop that bit out the next time I send it out then. Well, you'll you'll clear that piece of that piece of forest. Yes, make a clearing. So, I will do, yeah. We're birdsong reverberate. Mm. I think would be a good place to start it, because even though you might say, "Well, that's po- a little bit poety," because you undercut it immediately with, "I watch you swing out into space on a ditched tire." Yeah. So I think it works very well together. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a that's a strong opening then, because you think, oh, we're on the heath with birdsong is around me reverberating. I watch you swing out, and then it's a dirty old tire on a rope. So I think that's a that's a really good contrast then. It's definitely a thing, isn't it? When you when you write a poem, one of the first things you often think of is I've got to make the reader know where this is happening. So yeah. or, or when. So like last Friday. Uh, I I had a um, a piece of toast, or or when I was in the Aegean, uh, or sailing through the Suez Canal, and and sometimes if you if you do that in a poem and then get to the end of it and then just literally cut out the first line or the first, you know, and then see what you've got because I think often readers can figure out where it's happening without you literally telling them at the start of the poem. Um, but I don't. I don't know because uh, I mean, you know, sometimes you know, really great poems do that. But I think, I think the key thing is to be ruthless. You know, I think sometimes you just have to be ruthless. And even though you might go, "In a forest of the mind" is the greatest line that either I or any poet ever in the history of poetry has ever written. If it sounds, you know, if it's too much. If it's yeah, if it sounds too much, then. Don't be afraid to get rid of it. If it if it's not doing anything, if it doesn't add anything, if it's if it's uh, you know surplus to requirements, then yeah, it's, it's the it's the phrase "kill your babies," isn't it? It's it's uh, I've I've heard this before. So the idea is you you've written your poem and you you think ah oh, that's the brilliant that's the key line in it that's the one 
that, that kind of sums it up. Uh, but then you read it and you think, well, actually, you don't need that line because yeah. the, it's, too, it's, it's overpowering the rest. And without it, it's much more subtle and it gives... Uh, I'm not saying that's necessarily the case here, but that's often it's been written there. Well, uh, you can always keep that line to start another poem. You know, if yeah. It, yeah. Really sings. You think that's got legs to it. Mm. Yeah. Another poem on it. Absolutely. That, I remember getting that piece of advice about 15 years ago on an Arvon course, and <laughs> I always remember it. It's, it's a good kind of general what not to do in a poem. Mm. It gets you get certainly write it to start with, but then get rid of it and then see what you've got left. So the framework, you delete the uh, pencil markings to create what, what's left. Great. Well, thanks for that, Simon. And uh, we have reached that point where we're going to end the podcast. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and uh, got something out of the poems, both the ones that we've chosen and, and our own. And uh, as I said with mine, who knows, these, these poems might appear at some point in the future. And uh, do, do, uh, I, do get in touch if, if, you, if you can work out a way to do that. Uh, and uh, also, uh, I, what I think we, re we really want to say is I hope this sort of inspires you to, uh, to, to get your pen out and, uh, and write something. You know? And if you wanted to think about the idea of place and, and what it means to you, um, go for it. That's that's uh, that's basically what we do, and uh, I hope uh, uh, I hope you got you got something positive out of it anyway. And uh, I mean, who knows? We will we we enjoyed it. Did we have a good time? <laughs> it was lovely, David. Thank you. Well, I'm sure yes. we'll we'll uh, we'll listen back and decide whether it's worth doing again. So uh, we <laughs> you might we'll see an episode two. It's a great way to end a podcast. <laughs> We'll, we'll see if it was worth doing, if, it, if it, we, we could be bothered to do another one. So we have been the Renegades of Poetry. We're signing off. Bye for now. Bye for now. Bye-bye. That was a Renegades of Poetry featuring Gareth Ryter-Davis, Simon Cockle and David Van Coulter. A Renegades of Poetry is an Arenig production 2021. <laughs>